calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Less investment and more consumption. The gigantic task of rebalancing the China economy and the investment implications. These are the topics of our discussion today. Welcome to this episode of CFA Institute's Take 15 series. I'm Sam Lum from the Asia-Pacific Regional Office of CFA Institute. And joining us today in Hong Kong is Professor Patrick Shavanek, Associate Professor at Tsinghua University School of Economics and Management. Professor Shavanek has been a regular guest commentator on CCTV in China and on China Radio International. He has been serving as chairman of the Public Policy Committee at DM Cham in China. Professor Shavanek, thanks for being here with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. One of the policy reactions of China's central government to the global financial crisis of 2008 is promoting massive investment spending. We saw lots of infrastructure projects started. We saw lots of residential and commercial properties going up. How are all these financed? Yeah, the way that uh, China was able to sustain high GDP in the face of the global financial crisis was through engineering and investment boom, uh, mainly through uh, an expansion of credit. And uh, China's money supply expanded dramatically uh, by in the first uh, two years by about uh, two-thirds. And, uh, uh, and so there was just a lot of money pumped into the system. Now that money originally came from uh, the balance of payment surpluses that China ran, um, and it had been frozen there as, uh, in order to avoid inflation, but th that money was injected into the economy and allowed to be lent out. Uh, there's really two questions that flow from that, is uh, where did the money go and, and, and where did the money come from? You know, where did the money go? Um, I think that there probably were some investments that, that needed to be made. Uh, but uh, the criteria really was to get the money out for a GDP boost as opposed to what the return on that investment was going to be. And then uh, uh, where did the money come from? It came from monetary expansion. And so you have the dual problems emerging from that of bad debt and inflation. And right now the challenge is uh, China's growth continues to depend Absent a, a more substantive adjustment, China's growth continues to depend on investment. Last year, in 2011, out of 9.2% GDP growth, five percentage points of that came from investment in fixed assets. Uh, and um, that, that needs to be financed. Not just all the investment that took place last year, but even more needs to be financed. Now, where is that money going to come from? Uh, increasingly, as bad debt becomes a real problem, that those funds that that, mo that money needs to that, that invest those investments need to be refinanced. That money needs to be rolled over. Um, that eats up the credit that's available in the system, and that leaves you with only the uh, uh, the option of expanding credit uh, in order to finance the new projects. Well, if you expand credit, then you court the danger of inflation, not just consumer inflation, but asset inflation, uh, 
form of a, a housing bubble or other bubbles. And increasingly, um, China is facing this dilemma of how do you finance all of this investment at the same time coping with bad debt, the need to roll over bad debt, uh, and then the need to constrain inflation. And it's becoming a, a juggling act. And at, at some point, one of those balls is going to fall on the ground. And we actually saw that with the real estate sector. That's what happened, is that uh, the, the, the goal of, on the one hand, encouraging growth through credit, and on the other hand, trying to restrain credit in order to rein in prices, ultimately led to um, a contradiction and then a collapse in the market. Well, speaking of the property market, we've heard from strategists and hedge funds that there are many of these so-called ghost towns in China where blocks and blocks of new buildings remain empty and with no sign of any people moving in. With the continuing trend of rural to urban migration, and as a country with such a massive population, do you see this situation easily resolved in China? Well, people who are bullish about China's real estate market point to two things, urbanization and rising incomes, that usually are a sign of vibrant demand in, for real estate. Um, the problem, though, is that there's a big mismatch between what's being built and what the real demand for affordable mm -hmm. living space actually is. So, uh, you know, for, for many years now, uh, people in China have been using real estate not just as a place to live, but also as a, a place to stash their cash, a store of value. And that's why you have this situation where people buy up multiple units and leave them empty. And a lot of these ghost towns, it's not unsold inventory, or it wasn't until recently. Uh, it was things, units that had been sold but were just unoccupied. And it's because they were performing a very different function. They were, they were uh, a place to stash cash, kind of like gold. It doesn't produce anything, but, it, but it's, uh, it's a place to put your money. Uh, the problem, though, is that one, as long as that persists, it competes with housing as a human need. It bids up the price of housing, makes it difficult for people to afford a place to live. And then secondly, if that ever changed, you would have, uh, um, you'd, have to put, you'd have to put end users in these units. Now, there's a clearing price for that. Uh, there's 1.3 billion people in China who would like a place to live, and they'd like as nice a place to live as possible. The question is, at what price? And I feel that in many cases it would be a price where uh, it would be below what a lot of people have invested and it would be maybe even below what uh, the cost of, of building those units was. And, and now what we've seen take place over the past uh, few months is uh, developers over the past year or so bet against cooling and they, kept, they, they were building up unsold inventories. And when that finally broke, um, the mar the Historically, people who have been using real estate as a, as a store of value were looking to the primary market prices as an indicator of whether their investments were doing good or bad. Now, of course, those prices are going down. And so the question is, what will those people do? Will they continue to see it as a store of value, or will they try to get out? Because if they try to get out, that could really turn what's right now a retreat into a route. All right. We've just seen that at the National People's Congress, the GDP growth target for next year has been lowered to 7.5%. And earlier for the 12-5 year plan, the average for the next five years is going to be lower to 7%. Considering that the investment spending spree has been coming to an end, and exports generally is down, 
Is China going to be able to rebalance its economy to be much more consumption-oriented? And if consumption could not make up for the significant decline in investments and exports, are we going to see much slower growth over the next few years than the 7% target that was announced for the five-year plan? I guess uh, there has been talk of 3 to 5% growth going forward. It's going into a correction. We'll see whether the outcome of that is real rebalancing. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think that the 7.5 number, you, know, you can look at it in two ways. Uh, one very popular interpretation is uh, people say, well, you know, the target was 8% last year. They well exceeded that. Target 7.5% this year, they'll well exceed that. I, I see it a little bit differently. I think that 8% last year was sort of an expression of intent to try to wean the economy away from this dependence on investment and maybe accept a little bit lower growth. And in particular, uh, the main mechanism for that would be constraining credit expansion. However, that didn't happen last year. Um, formal credit was limited last year, but you had an explosion of informal credit and the investment boom continued. Um, investment grew at uh, around 24% a year. We're uh, really leading GDP growth. So that means that this year, uh, it's going to be even harder to wean oneself away from this dependence on investment without actually having a hard landing. And that's, of course, what everyone is afraid of, is that it's easy to talk about this kind of adjustment. It's much harder to actually do it, not just because there's the danger that in the process of, of the adjustment that you have a hard landing, but it's also that a Chinese economy that is driven by consumption as opposed to investment looks very different from the Chinese economy of today. The winners and losers are different. And so on a, while the aggregates might remain the same, the, the micro composition of the economy would change. And uh, that would be a very tumultuous process. And, and, and it also means you know, one of, the, one of the things that's driven very high levels of growth over the past uh, several decades has been that the Chinese economy has been rigged to uh, channel resources away from savers and consumers to subsidize production and investment. Well, you have to reverse that uh, in order to meaningfully boost consumption. But that means cutting the legs out from under the investment growth that you have that's been driving the high numbers. So it means accepting, to some degree, a, a, an adjustment that means lower growth, at least short term, in, either, in order to achieve longer term, more sustainable growth. But nobody wants to sacrifice the growth that they have. So that's why we've been in this dilemma for the past several years of people saying that this adjustment needs to take place, but then we haven't really seen that much motion towards it. So what are the investment implications of all these? Is China still a good buy? What type of investments and sectors would be most attractive on a risk-reward basis? Well, see, it's interesting that, that you phrase it exactly that way. Is China a good buy? Because I think that that has been the question, the way that the question's been framed over the past several decades is the China story. Right? So, so you either bought into the China story or you didn't, and you either accepted it wholesale or you didn't. And I think that one of the things that's going to change in the coming years is that that China story of the rising tide lifts all boats, that just an immense amount of growth means that you can run a business well, you can run it poorly, you can have it structured however you want, and it, nevertheless you'll, you'll succeed, that is over. Uh, and I think that we've already started to see greater skepticism towards that with 
know, the exposés with muddy waters and, and, and the effect that that's had on, on the perception of Chinese stocks globally. Uh, I think going forward, there's going to be a greater, not skepticism, but a greater discernment between uh, companies that are really poised to succeed, sectors that are really poised to succeed, and those which uh, um, are not sustainable, at least in their present form. And so, uh, um, you know, if there is a correction, and I think we're already starting to see a correction, uh, initially, not only does that create disruption, but it also creates opportunities for those who are prepared um, to capitalize on the inefficiencies in the current system, either by providing credit to those who can't get it, but nevertheless you get it, or by uh, going short on those who, who uh, uh, aren't prepared for this kind of transition, um, or by buying assets uh, at fire sale prices uh, for, from those who, who really weren't prepared to weather the change. But longer term, I think that what we'll see is a shift in the Chinese economy towards uh, areas where there's a lot of productive, a, lo a lot of productivity gains still to be realized. Mm -hmm. Agriculture, retail, consumer branded goods, services, logistics, uh, medical, healthcare, areas that haven't really been tapped fully in China because it's been so much easier to make money throwing up uh, uh, expensive uh, condos or luxury villas uh, or, uh, or providing the inputs for that kind of investment. So I think that we'll see a meaningful shift. And, I, and in the end, it will be good for the Chinese economy. But it'll be a very different kind of Chinese economy than the one that we've grown accustomed to. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Professor Chapanek, for sharing your thoughts and insights on China's economy and the investment outlook with us. My pleasure. And thank you, our viewers, for joining us for this episode of CFA Institute's Take 15 series. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.